From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today, a crucial test for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor in the Trump election conspiracy case. Specifically looking at Defendant Roman's motion, it alleges a personal relationship that resulted in a financial benefit to the district attorney. And that is no longer a matter of complete speculation. The state has admitted a relationship existed. Judge Scott McAfee will hear arguments on whether the romantic relationship between Willis and Nathan Wage should disqualify them from prosecuting the case. I'm Greg Bluestein. The state election board voted not to urge lawmakers to end no-excuse absentee voting. The AJC's Mark Nisi joins us today to discuss why some Republicans are still pushing to limit voting options. I'm Bill Nygut. Plus, we'll look at a number of high-profile bills that are still in play as the second half of the legislative session gets underway. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see do and enjoy along the world's most famous beach daytona beach florida beach on guys this is i mean talk about some big news day here in atlanta this is one of those days that just anything can happen we watch this with as much anticipation as any kind of story out there i mean this is the day that could determine whether fonnie willis is able to move forward with prosecuting Donald Trump and his co-defendants. We, we probably won't get a decision today, but we'll learn a lot in the hearing about it. Yeah, yeah, and Craig, we've got all kinds of national reporters down here. This is literally being watched around the world right now. And live streamed on, on national <laughs> cable networks as we speak. When we say it's a make or break day, that's no understatement. Legal experts doubt that you know the entire case will be dr- thrown out, but there is certainly a possibility, who, who knows how, how large, that Fonnie Willis could be disqualified from the case or the Fulton County DA's office could be disqualified from this case. All right, well, let's get into the details here. It's hard to overstate the potential consequences of the hearing that's getting underway right now in Judge Scott McAfee's courtroom this morning. Defendant Michael Roman filed a blockbuster motion several weeks ago accusing District Attorney Fonnie Willis of having an improper romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, the man she hired to become the special counsel in this Donald Trump case. Roman's attorneys said that Willis went on multiple expensive trips with Wade, and they alleged that those trips were paid for by the salary that Wade is being uh, paid to handle the Trump case. Roman's motion calls for Willis, Wade, and the entire Fulton County DA's office to be removed from the case and that the charges against him be dismissed. His suit has now been joined by eight other defendants. And here to help us dig into all of this, even as the the case is being heard right now in Judge McAfee's office, we are so happy to be joined by former Democratic state senator and current attorney Jen Jordan. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. I'm waiting Jen, you're muted. Her. Yeah, we need to get you off of mute. <laughs> you would think I would know this by now. Right? <laughs> I have done this at least once a week since COVID, so yeah. not to worry. Good not morning, worry. everyone. So happy to be here with y'all. <laughs> well, good morning. Thanks for taking time out this morning to talk to us because we thought you would be um, somebody with a very unique perspective on this situation because, Senator, you also um, testified to the special grand jury and the grand jury in this case. So if you could just lay out your experience so far um, with this case so they sort of know where you're coming from. And then we've got to ask a follow-up question. Did did you suspect any of this while you were watching behind the scenes? Look, no. I mean, as someone who's uh, been a part of the process in terms of as a witness, um, someone who has been interviewed by investigators, um, you know, who has talked to the uh, the attorneys with the prosecution team um, and who's testified. This thing has been handled professionally um, 
you know, from the very beginning. And for those who um, don't understand or know why I would be involved at all, um, when I was in the state Senate, that is when Rudy Giuliani came down and they had the um, the Senate subcommittee hearing where, you know, he presented false information um, to the state Senate in an effort really to get, um, you know, the results of the election overturned. So um, from that hearing, really, you know, I was an eyewitness to what was what was happening. And, and that's really what I told the grand jury. I mean, and, and that's what folks need to understand, that this is a legal process. This is a criminal prosecution. And with respect to that, um, you know, you really do have to follow the rules. And, and from my perspective, in terms of uh, this prosecution, it's been done very professionally um, and, you know, in it really is interesting now to kind of see the spectacle that has been made with with respect to this alleged relationship or even relationship um, between the district attorney and um, one of the special prosecutors. Senator, we wrote this morning that people expecting to tune into this hearing and find a sort of wall to wall riveting hearing might be a little disappointed because there's going to be a lot of back and forth about what can be introduced into evidence, what witnesses can testify. But already we're seeing Terrence Bradley take the stand. Can you tell us a little about who Terrence Bradley is and why his testimony might be, uh, why he might be the star witness in this whole thing? Well, Terrence Bradley is the former law partner of um, Nathan Wade. And in terms of the, so Judge McAvee had a hearing um, earlier to determine and really, this isn't the 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 appropriate word or, or phrase, but this is kind of the way I, I saw it. Mm -hmm. Was there probable cause to basically move forward with an evidentiary hearing? Was there enough there there? And in terms of the proffer that um, Roman's attorney made, Miss Merchant, she specifically pointed to her star witness. And that's what the judge actually said about him, that he was the former um law partner of Mr. Wade, and he would testify that what Mr. Wade had um, sworn to in his affidavit was a lie. Um, that was shocking, right? Yeah. Like to make that allegation in open court um, that an affidavit had been filed, especially an officer of the court who is a special prosecutor on this case. And so that really was the thing that that seemed to be driving McAvee's decision um, to have this evidentiary hearing today. And so with Bradley showing up as kind of the star witness, um, it really is kind of a make or break moment um, with respect to the defendants and their allegations in terms of their motion. So um, one of the things that I think had a chill up the spine of uh, the Fonnie Willis probably and Nathan Wade was when he agreed that there should be a hearing, um, Judge McAfee said that the facts alleged by Roman, quote, could result in disqualification. And of course, Jen, as you well know, um, most of the legal experts who have looked at what Ashley Merchant is presenting in terms of reasons for the disqualification don't seem to have much to do with uh, the case itself. It has to do with the personal relationship. But if, if it proves true that that Wade, in his deposition, lied about when this relationship began, that's a whole different matter, isn't it, in terms of whether there's reason for disqualification? Well, and I don't even think it's the deposition. I think it's it's really the affidavit that is filed affidavit. in response yeah. to this motion in this case with respect to this prosecution. And that's what we have to remember. Um, look, I, from my perspective, looking at um, the case law and understanding what the standards are, there really are not grounds um, for legal disqualification here. It's, it's very strict. And really, at the end of the day, it is all about the public's um, faith in the justice system, right? And so, and also making sure that a defendant gets a fair trial. So for example, some of the reasons that you would disqualify a prosecutor and what has been identified, you know, as, as grounds for it are for, if I represented um, a defendant in the past and now I'm prosecuting him or her and I use my knowledge as an attorney um, to go after them. That's improper, that's grounds for uh, disqualification. If, for example, the victim of a crime um, is somebody I'm close to, and so then it brings into question, why am I prosecuting this person? Am I prosecuting them because 
I need to prosecute them and I'm really looking for justice or am I prosecuting them because of revenge or vengeance or whatever, right? That brings into kind of play an improper purpose, if you will. Um, but in terms of this relationship between Willis and Wade, that that is just a red herring. I mean, it, it's one of those things where, look, Let's be clear. No one is saying any any of this looks good or is okay or is proper or whatever. But it really is more of a, a political problem um, for the district attorney who does face reelection this year. Um, it's also a problem in terms of the prosecution, the credibility of the prosecution, right? Mm -hmm. And so, if anything, this this whole relationship and and what happened and and how was he paid and all of, all of these allegations that are just kind of icky, right? Nobody wants to talk about it. It's like, ugh, this just doesn't sound good. It doesn't rise to disqualification, though. And so it's something that she is going to have to deal with in terms of running for re-election. It's probably something she's going to have to deal with if there are ethics charges filed or maybe even a bar complaint. But in terms of actual disqualification from this case, really, it is just thrown out there to undermine her, undermine her credibility and her office's credibility, and really to give something for the Trump team to talk about on social media to act like this is just some kind of witch hunt by somebody who has these improper relationships. Yeah, I think also um, a problem for Fonnie Willis is that no matter what the outcome is, her judgment already has been seen as damaged. I think the fact Absolutely. that this would be going Absolutely. on while she's conducting the most closely watched court case, maybe even in state history, let alone uh, the most watched court case in the country right now, that this could be happening going on trips to Aruba and Belize and Napa Valley several times. It just sort of, I think it does hurt the outs from the outside looking in, her just general judgment. Um, but to get to the legal question here, another thing that Ashley Merchant has raised is that the improper piece of this could be the fact that as more motions are filed, as the longer this case goes on, Yesterday in court, she said that that served to enrich Nathan Wade, that every time they could have a continuance, have a challenge, keep it going. Um, he's now billed more than $700,000. But is that is that just sort of standard operating procedure or is there a level of activity going on here that would raise somebody's questions about is there something going on to to prolong and delay and expand this case for somebody's personal financial benefit? Look, if, if that were an actual ground or an actual problem, um, then there are hundreds of special attorney generals um, out of the attorney general's office that would be disqualified, right? There would be John Floyd, any anybody who has come in to actually help um, with the prosecution who is being paid hourly. And, and, and let's be clear for a second, right? In terms of the hourly rate that is being paid to these special attorney generals or special prosecutors at the county level, it is generally much, much lower than they would get in private practice. But this is something that is standard operating procedure and a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know you have your budget you know what your caseload generally is but then sometimes a big case comes in where you have to hire specialists or you have to hire more manpower um, to, to come in because at the same time that we're dealing with or I should say that that the district attorney is dealing with the biggest prosecution in terms of Trump, probably in the history of this this country. At the same time, we all know as residents of Fulton County that there is a major backlog yeah. in terms of criminal prosecutions. So one of the things is you have to bring in more people because you you don't want actually the prosecution of the Trump case um, to impede the prosecution or the work of the district attorney's office on a daily basis. So that is just a non-starter. I mean, and honestly, to be quite frank, attorneys get paid hourly in a case, period. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that could be used against every single attorney in every single case across the board. Um, that is not grounds for disqualification. And I think that's just, that's just dead in the water. Jen, you've uh, laid out the case for why you believe there is not legal reason for uh, disqualifying Fonnie Willis or, as Ashley Merchant's uh, motion uh, 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 
asks for the entire Fulton County DA's office to be removed from the case. But if McAfee should rule that, in fact, the merchant motion uh, is, is correct and he honors it, this becomes a matter now for the prosecuting attorney's counsel to name a new prosecutor for this case. And that's problematic in many ways, I think, isn't it? Well, it is. And and, and again, let's walk back in tor- terms of the history of this. My last session as a state senator, we actually took the power of appointment for conflict prosecutors out of the attorney general's office. The problem was the attorney general was not actually appointing prosecutors. There were there were many cases that were going unprosecuted across the state. So thinking we need to make this less political, right? We're going to make this less political. We're going to take it out of the attorney general's <laughs> office. So we're going to give it to the prosecuting attorney's counsel, which really is made up of career prosecutors <clears throat> normally, thinking this will kind of help. Um, the problem is what we've seen is look what happened with Burt Jones, right? So we have Judge McBurney who ruled, look, this this relationship, this really close relationship between um, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, and, and Charlie Bailey, who was a candidate for lieutenant governor, who was running against Burt Jones, it at least raises the appearance of an impropriety that she's going after Jones. Again, we have to look at what is the reason for the prosecution? She's going after Jones to help Charlie, right? To help Mr. Bailey in terms of his campaign. Whether she is or not, it kind of, it it looks like that. So that's what he based the disqualification on, right? That kind of, that appearance of impropriety. Okay, that goes to the prosecuting attorney's counsel to find another district attorney. We are still sitting here today. More than 18 months later. Yeah, more than 18 months later, because what has happened is you have the prosecuting attorney's counsel is completely funded by the Republican dominated state government. Right. And if they this is me hypothetical. Right. This is just me musing. I have no idea what's really going on behind the scenes. But look, the the ability of that entity, the prosecuting attorney's counsel, to even function, um, to keep their doors open, all depends on the money that comes from the state. Nobody wants to make a misstep. So there hasn't been um, a district, a Democratic district attorney that's been brought in to look at this, right? Or a Metro Atlanta district attorney to try to go after Mr. Jones, right? And what I've heard is that every Republican district attorney in the state has absolutely refused to pick it up um, and run with it in terms of a prosecution. So what happens here, right? So let's say that we have Judge McAfee say, you know what, Mm, this is another what were you thinking moment, Mm -hmm. um, Madam District Attorney. The Fulton County Attorney's Office, uh, District Attorney's Office is now absolutely, you know, put to the sidelines. Um, I'm going to send it up to PAC for them to appoint another prosecutor. And then nothing happens, Mm -hmm. right? It gets pulled into the political morass. And if you want to talk about how people will have less faith in the process, and, and less faith in the rule of law because now you, you've successfully shut down a prosecution, um, you know, through political wrangling. I mean, that is the bigger danger here. And so I think that that's something that the judge really has to take into account, that if he does disqualify the Fulton County Attorney's Office, District Attorney's Office, that this case may not be prosecuted at all. Senator, I want to ask you about the judge, but before I do, real quick update from the hearing that's going on right now, um, Terrence Bradley is, is now saying he consulted with the Georgia Bar and was advised he cannot reveal anything he knew or saw about the relationship between uh, Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis. So th- he's asking for a Georgia Supreme Court review of that right now. I don't know how that's going to play out, but that, that is what's happening in court right now. But, Senator, this, this strikes me as this incredible moment, too, for Judge McAfee because he's someone who has tried to really avoid the spectacle of all this, He's tried to stay grounded, uh, and ahead of today's hearing, he's vowed to keep it focused on the issues at hand, and he'd want to prevent harassment or humiliation or attempts to embarrass Fonnie Willis with anything gratuitous, but he's going to be under the microscope, too. Well, and, and look, his role, really, you've got to take out the personalities, right? You know, who's on each side of the V in terms of the actual people? 
his role is to make sure that whomever is charged, you know, and who is sitting um, there as a, a defendant charged with a crime, that they get the process um, that they are entitled to under not only our, our U.S. Constitution, but also our Georgia Constitution. And he is there to make sure that the guardrails in place, that the rules are followed. And that's why he is taking this disqualification motion very seriously. And he has to make sure that he hears the evidence and that he weighs the evidence, that he can't even look like, he doesn't even want to be perceived as, as kind of putting his thumb, you know, um, one way or the other in, in for the defense or for, for um, you know, for the prosecution. And that's why he's really letting both sides come and present their evidence. You know, he's doing he's doing a great job. And, and usually a judge is doing a great job um, when both sides aren't necessarily 100 percent happy with them. Um, and, and I think that we can fairly say that both sides sitting there today probably aren't 100 percent happy with the judge right now. Let's talk a little bit more about what we can expect to see later today and possibly even into tomorrow because we've been told that this could take more than one day to get through this portion of the case. Um, it strikes me of how incredibly personal this has all gotten um, because we obviously have attorneys who know each other. We have uh, prosecutors who were involved with each other. And there is a chance that that uh, Fonnie Willis's own father could be called as a witness to testify about whether or not Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis had been living together. This feels to me, Jen, like we are so far away from the original purpose of this case, which was election interference. And I'm wondering what this does to the underlying case itself. It obviously delays it. Well, that's the whole point of this, right? The whole point of this is to really... um, impugn the judgment of the Fulton County District Attorney's Office to make it look like this is something other than like a straightforward uh, prosecution. Um, And also, to be quite frank, this is an effort to go ahead and start to affect the jury pool, right? To make people think something else is going on. You know, every potential juror in Fulton County um, is listening to this and thinking, man, that that sounds a little weird. Um, and, and a lot of them aren't lawyers and know this has nothing to do with the case, right? Whether or not she had a relationship, um, yes, no, whatever, has nothing to do um, with the prosecution of Trump and those other defendants, no matter what um, the defendants want to tell you um, in terms of their motion. But that's kind of part of the narrative. And look, I'm not saying that they're pe- playing, you know, four-dimensional chess here, Um, but also think about it in a political year, too, attacking her. I mean, look, if you had somebody primary the district attorney and beat her in May of this year, um, literally that cuts the legs out of this prosecution, um, too, because then you're going to have another district attorney coming in, um, and then what happens um, with respect to the Trump case? So, there, there are many different plays here, political, um, you know, obviously personal, um, but the least of which, the least of which has to do with actual legal disqualification. Jen, I want to pick up on the real-time development very quickly because I know we're running out of time that Greg just uh, uh, told us about, reported on. So Terrence Bradley is the Ashley Merchant uh, witness who she says will uh, testify that Nathan Wade lied about the relationship with Fonnie Willis not starting till after they'd begun working on the case. The development that, that Greg just reported on is that Bradley says the Bar Association has advised him he shouldn't talk about that, and now he wants to go to the Georgia Supreme Court to learn more. Does You're the lawyer. Does that suggest that we could see another delay since he is crucial to Ashley Ashley Merchant's uh, motion? Could this thing uh, drag on now because of that? Well, it could probably drag on till tomorrow. I mean, look, and for those of you who don't know who, we we talked about Bradley being um, Nathan Wade's law partner, but the significant thing for purposes of him saying that he can't testify is that he was Nathan Wade's lawyer, 
right? Nathan Wade's lawyer in the divorce. And so what he is saying that any information that he has really is because of his role as an attorney that is protected. Um, it is privileged and he can't testify as to that. And so my guess is, is that the Georgia Supreme Court would be willing to hear this pretty quickly um, and, and rule on it. But look, you know, attorney-client privilege is a is a lockbox um and and in terms of that if the state bar has already kind of advised him that this is dangerous territory my guess is is that the supreme court would would probably come down um in in the same way all right well one um one quick question for you uh for the future of Fonnie willis do you think that any of this could result in a primary challenge to Fonnie willis because we are just about to get to uh, a filing uh, period when any potential uh, challengers to Fonnie Willis would be able to go ahead and qualify to run against her? You know, it could. Um, but I'll tell you, it's probably more likely to have more of a gadfly on the Republican side um, who is just there to make trouble for her and um, to constantly bring up this to undermine her ability to appropriately prosecute um, the Trump defendants for election interference. Um, of course, you're always going to have, look, it's just the way it is, right? People, if they think that they can get a headline, they think that they can be in front of the camera. I mean, they may throw their um, their name into the hat. But at the end of the day, this is for the Fulton County voters to determine whether or not they're happy with Fonnie Willis's um, what she's done on the job, right? Not who she's dating, not what she's doing when she's off the job, but what she's done as the district attorney um, for this county. Um, so, but I'll tell you what, you're going to have a lot to talk about in the coming year. <laughs> well, we definitely will. And we hope that you will come back and join us. Um, Jen Jordan, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll let you go ahead and get back to uh, following all of the ins and outs of this very, uh, very pivotal court case today. Thank you all. All right. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all of the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC Politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. Well, on Monday, by a vote of three to two, the state election board rejected a proposal to end no-excuse absentee voting in Georgia. Some Republicans blamed the wide expansion of absentee voting during the pandemic as the reason that Joe Biden won the state in 2020. And here to talk about that and all things voting is the AJC's Mark Nisi. Mark, thanks so much for being with us today. Good morning. Always great to be here. Good morning. Well, along with covering all things voting and elections, you wear another hat at the AJC and that you also cover the state house for us. So I'm going to pitch you a little quick surprise question. Tell us about Butch Parrish, who has now been um, appointed to head the House Rules Committee. Can you tell us just a little bit about him and why he's been appointed? Absolutely. So uh, Butch Parrish, he's been in the Georgia House for nearly 40 years. Um, he was appointed this morning by Speaker John Burns to become the next chairman of the Rules Committee, which is perhaps the most powerful committee in the House. It decides which bills get a vote. And Representative Parrish, he's been here for a long time. He's pretty... Um, you know, well-established. He's um, accepted by um, certainly majority Republicans and Democrats seem to like him as well. He's a South Georgia representative. He's specialized on leadership roles in health committees. And now he will move into this other position that is basically the gatekeeper that decides what issues will actually advance in the House. Oh, the gatekeeper. Okay, well, I we're like going to keep a, an even closer eye on Butch Parrish. Well, thanks for that. Now let's move on to voting because the state election board, Mark, voted on Monday um, to keep no excuse absentee voting here in Georgia. That means that if you have the desire to vote absentee here in Georgia, you don't need to tell anybody why. There are some states where you have to have literally a doctor's note or a note from your employer that you'll be out of town. You have to show that you have some reason to vote absentee. But since 2005, it's been the case that you can vote absentee for no reason. Why was there a challenge to that? 
Sure. So this was a resolution brought by State Election Board member Janice Johnston, who is a Republican Party appointee. And because she brought the resolution to encourage the General Assembly to consider limiting absentee voting to excuse only, it became an item on the board's agenda. Um, Dr. Johnston, she talked about um, during Tuesday's state election board meeting about how absentee ballots can't ensure ballot privacy and how the these ballots are not under the close oversight of poll watchers and poll workers at in-person voting places. Basically, the essence of her comments was she felt that absentee voting is not as secure as in-person voting, although it always needs to be said that yes there are problems in both absentee voting and in-person voting and there hasn't been fraud found especially in the 2020 election and ultimately um, the georgia general assembly has passed laws that allow both forms of voting in georgia mark i'm glad you uh pointed out that it's the election board that would recommend the legislature an end to no excuse absentee uh, voting, if that's the way they had gone. Um, but since they said no, that does not mean that the legislature couldn't in and of itself take up a measure to end no excuse voting. But I don't think, to the best of my knowledge, that's been uh, uh, talked about very much in this year when there are other election measures that are being discussed. Am I right about that? That's right. Uh, reducing or eliminating no excuse absentee voting has not been on the agenda in this year's session. It has been discussed in the past, um, in recent years, but not currently this year. And while the state election board does not have the power to change Georgia laws, I imagine if this resolution had advanced, it certainly would have become more of an issue for the General Assembly to consider. We might have seen greater discussion of whether to eliminate this form of voting used by 250, 260,000 people in 2022. And in 2020, 1.3 million people voted by absentee ballot during the coronavirus pandemic in the general election. So, you know, it, it would have set the agenda in a sense. It, if this vote wouldn't have necessarily changed anything immediately, but it could have given ammunition for legislators to take up this issue. Yeah, Mark, we were talking about that at the Capitol the other day, just how this could provide cover for those uh, for those who are, have been seeking to limit voting options, but you know, in general, you know, you, you've been we're four years since the 2020 election, and it seems like you still the bulk of, or at least a lot of what you're writing still involves election fraud lies about what what happened here four years ago. I mean, talk about how you approach that as a reporter, because you know, how many times have you written the phrase <laughs> that there is no significant <laughs> widespread election fraud in, in in Georgia's 2020 election? Well, certainly what we see in Georgia is that legislators respond to what their constituents are saying. Georgia is a Republican-led state in the General Assembly, and we see low voter confidence, as shown by Atlanta Journal-Constitution polls, in election integrity, especially among Republican voters. And so what we see is legislators responding that, to that, always trying to make changes to improve security and to respond to the desires not just of their constituents but also the republican party of georgia which is very influential as well among many legislators so how to approach it you know some of these proposals while they might be based in fears over election fraud that doesn't necessarily exist in the 2020 election that doesn't necessarily mean all of these proposals are inherently good or bad right like a lot of them are non-offensive uh you know putting watermarks on ballots for security um does it really improve security maybe a little bit maybe it's not a controversial issue putting ballot pictures online so people can view them is that going to change much no but it does if it passes would improve increase transparency. Now, other proposals that actually limit voting access or change how voters interact with the system or limit the powers of election officials, such as, you know, a bill moving through the process that would give the state election board power to investigate Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's operations. You know, those are more direct changes to how elections and voting is done 
in Georgia. So there's a range of things here going on, but it does all stem from 2020 for the most part, right? All these complaints from almost four years ago now, I guess more like three plus years, are still alive and well, and it will never end in the near term <laughs> because because it is because it is an important topic for many voters and not just republican voters democratic voters as well it's just that conservative voters are the ones who have representatives and senators in power at the general assembly so they're the ones who are able to promote and push forward their agenda so it has to be said that Republican voters didn't just wake up one day and think that there oh, there was something really fishy about that 2020 election. There are specific reasons about why Republican voters in particular believe that the election was either not trustworthy or completely stolen. And one reason is because of former President Donald Trump, of course, he continues to say that as his as a key part of his election rallies even today. But another reason was a movie, Mark, called 2000 Mules. This was something that was, um, this is a movie produced about the 2020 elections. And uh, Greg and I would go to campaign events in the 2022 election cycle. Some of them were screenings of the movie 2000 Mules, and they would be those Donald Trump preferred candidates having a screening and a fundraiser to come watch 2000 Mules. Tell us about that movie and your reporting on the specific details of that movie this week. Yes, so I watched 2000 Mules when it came out in 2022 and wrote about it at the time. This is a movie that drummed up suspicions of fraud without proof of fraud. They used cell phone signals to, they got data on cell phone signals to show that certain cell phones were passing in the area within 100 or so feet of ballot drop boxes in the 2020 election. And they used those data to make a leap to say that these were ballot trafficking operations, that these were people dropping off ballots and delivering them from Democratic operatives. And none of that has been proven to any extent. We don't know who these organizations would be, who was involved, the names of any individuals. It's never even gotten to that point. It, the entire movie was based on these data and conjecture from them. So what we saw after the movie was released, the state election board uh, with a four to one Republican majority said, well, we need to investigate this. If this is true, this would be real, a real issue that we need to look into. So they sought more information from True the Vote. True the Vote did not disclose the identity of its anonymous informant or any further information beyond what it had provided to the GBI, which also declined to investigate, saying it was flimsy evidence and not substantial enough to merit an investigation. So what we reported this week is that in court documents in response to subpoenas, True the Vote said that they do not have any information about the identity of their source or really any further information in response to subpoenas. They did say they would provide additional responses to state election officials outside of court. But from what we can tell publicly is they either, they say they don't know the name of their own anonymous informant, which has raised questions about whether this is a real allegation. Who is this person? Where did this come from? Is it even credible at all? And here we are, you know, again, three plus years since the 2020 election, and we're no closer to finding out any more truth to these allegations. And Mark, which kind of, yeah, there, there, and there are a lot of reasons why you can have those pings, right? I live right near a library where it is also an election site. I drive by that library four or five times your average day. So my cell phone could be one of those pings that's, that is that is suspicious. And it reminds me, and Patricia mentioned this earlier, we would go to campaign rallies, not only would they be screenings, but there'd be people yelling at us to watch the movie. And of course we watched it as well. But it reminds me of some of the stuff that we heard behind the scenes from Republicans at the time saying, we've got all this proof and then we would say, "Bring it to us," you know, just like yeah. the. Where's the name? Where's One the name? name. Let, let, we're gonna. We have an entire team of investigative reporters, plus Mark Nisi, who would love to dive into all this <laughs> stuff. You know, where is it? And 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 as your story showed, uh, uh, you know, that true, the vote producers apparently don't even know the name of the of one of the sources who is alleging all these things. Um, right. So what? Did, 
yeah, what this shows is, you know, this movie was tremendously successful in getting people suspicious of the election, more suspicious and more skeptical of Democratic wins in 2020. And we, even though it didn't have evidence, it achieved its goal of making people distrust election I'm outcomes. Uh, Mark, I want to go back to the um, uh, no excuse absentee balloting for just a moment. Uh, am I correct? You have the data. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. That Republicans in Georgia still tend to not use um, absentee balloting to the extent that Democrats do. Well, it was very lopsided in 2020 when um, absentee voting was very popular, especially among Democrats in metro areas who were more um, concerned about in-person contact at polling places. But what we saw in 2022 is that those levels dropped to normal levels. Historically speaking, Republicans did vote absentee more than Democrats, um, perhaps because they were more likely, this is a little conjecture on my part, but perhaps because they were more likely to be older people who didn't necessarily want to leave their homes um, to go vote absentee. What we saw in 2022 is Democrats still did vote absentee more than Republicans in the top ballot races for governor and Senate, but certainly at much lower levels. Well, I mean, the reason I ask that is obviously a, a, an important development for Republicans could be to encourage more of their p people to vote a, a, a absentee. You know, we saw in the Tom Swasey election in the third congressional district in Long Island on Tuesday, he won by about eight points, but but a lot of that was absentee voting from Democrats. There was a snowstorm up there on Election Day. Now, I doubt that it kept 8% of the Republican voters from coming to the polls, but it certainly showed that absentee balloting has a powerful impact on an election. Absolutely. It does increase access. It's not discriminatory against Republicans or Democrats. Anybody can do it. But what we see is when you fuel suspicions about absentee voting, then Republicans are less likely to use it. And perhaps if they're less likely to vote absentee um, and feel like they have to vote in person, perhaps there's a marginal impact on turnout among Republican voters because they limit their own options internally. Um, and, you know, it's also worth saying that our voting laws have changed since 2020. It is harder to vote absentee, and mm -hmm. there's also greater ID requirements under Georgia's voting law, also quicker ballot counting requirements. It isn't like we're going to be counting absentee ballots for weeks after the election. Um, most all election results need to be counted on election night with limited exceptions. So those concerns no longer exist. All right. Well, a the AJC's Mark Nisi, we have a lot of elections coming up. We'll continue to come back to you for your expertise. And you have to get back to the House floor. So we're going to let you go. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Well, we've got a great deal for Politically Georgia listeners. And listen close, because this is the South's biggest deal. For a limited time, subscribe and you get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week for the rest of your life. As long as you keep your subscription, that's our sports, politics, breaking news, in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from the AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films and events, and newsletters. So just subscribe now by going to AJC.com start. That's AJC.com start. It's a great deal for a greater Atlanta for our new subscribers only for life. 
Well, this week, the legislature passed the halfway mark in the 2024 legislative session, and there are still some closely watched bills, plenty of them that remain in the mix. Uh, Greg, before we dive into what's happening at the legislature, give us a quick update on a few special elections that happened earlier this week on Tuesday. Well, we had one outcome that we know. Republican state, former state representative Tim Bearden won a special election for the state Senate seat out in West Georgia that was held by uh, State Senator Mike Dugan, who's now running for Congress. But there's a runoff in another race that is very closely watched, not just here in Georgia, but beyond. It is a solidly Republican district out near Augusta, in the suburbs of Augusta. It's a race between 21-year-old conservative social media influencer, we'll call him, C.J. Pearson, who's been in the political spotlight since he was 12, believe it or not. I mean, he's the only, he's the only person I, I know that I can talk, talk about that I've covered since he was 12, when I went out to his grandmother's house to write about him. Um, he's going against <laughs> former Columbia County Commissioner Gary Richardson, who is sort of the establishment back pick. And this is somewhat of a proxy fight over between Kemp and his, Governor Kemp and his allies and some of the far right in the party. Uh, C.J. Pearson, not only is he a social media influencer, he was also the campaign manager for a guy named Vernon Jones, who ran for governor against Governor Kemp, trying to get uh, Donald Trump's endorsement. He also... As you always mention, he always also filed that lawsuit yeah. against Kemp uh, about, about what we just had Mark Nisi talk about, uh, alleging all sorts of election fraud lies that, of course, were thrown out by the courts. Yes, the famous Sidney Powell challenge to the election was actually Pearson v. Kemp, if you look it up in uh, the logs. And so that is C.J. Pearson himself suing the governor and the state over the 2020 election results. And that uh, that filing is full of all sorts of inaccurate accusations about the election. So, Bizarre. Conspiracy yes. theories. Fantasies. I'm surprised it hasn't come up more, but uh, you know, it's not election day. It's not over yet, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. So, Bill, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, legislation moving through. I thought that when Jason Anavitarte, State Senator Jason Anavitarte, was on the show earlier this week, um, we dug into his bill about having a sales tax holiday for guns and ammunition, but. For the first time in a long time, there is a bipartisan agreement, it looks like, on a separate bill to have favorable tax treatment, eliminate sales taxes on gun safety equipment. And that, to me, seems really interesting. Yeah, I thought it was uh, 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 something to, to watch. Near unanimous consent, apparently. And I take this back to what happened in 2023 when Democratic State Representative Michelle Au presented a bill on uh, gun storage. I think it was mm-hmm. gun yes. storage yep. uh, uh, locks. Um, uh, and, and she got a hearing in a subcommittee, which was um, stunning to a lot of people who felt at the time that Republicans were not going to go there, that they did, they were more than willing to pass more liberal uh, gun laws, but didn't want to do anything about it. So I thought it's sort of the seeds were planted back then, and now it's spread uh, it, it to apparently a, a wide swath of the legislature. Yeah, and you asked Anna Vitarte, and I thought you sort of dug into the area of agreement that there is, is that um, among legislators, there's, there's, it's very hard to disagree that, yes, storing your guns safely should be made more easy. Now, the OWL bill would have required um, having a gun in, uh, in a safe or with a trigger lock if there was a minor in the household. This is something to just to encourage people um, to buy gun safes, to buy, to engage trigger, trigger locks and purchase them um, by making them cheaper. Yeah. Um, well, and what we talked to the senator about was it just happened that the day before, two days before, um, we had this terrible tragedy in which a three-year-old child in Georgia got a hold of a gun in the household that wasn't stored safely in any way and shot himself to death. And, and Senator, senator Anavitarte uh, showed a great deal of sympathy for that and, and talked about why he's willing to work towards some of these measures. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. There's a similar House measure, so there could be some agreement in both chambers on that. We'll have to see and we'll keep people updated. Um, Greg, speaking of both chambers, I we keep hearing buzz about a potential Medicaid expansion, but this legislative session is getting a little long in the tooth for something that complicated. Where do you think this is going? Yeah, we're past the midpoint crossover day, which is the deadline for a measure to pass one chamber to in order to survive to the other is fast approaching. Um, you know, it's it's very much up in the air. You know, we've always said 
it's a very slim chance of it passing, but this is also the first year that I've ever covered this issue in more than a, de- a decade where you're having Republican leaders in Georgia who are seriously talking about it for the first time. It's still a very long odds, especially in election year. Uh, and we also saw the governor recently file litigation to extend his own version of his much more narrow Medicaid expansion, which would be tied to work and academic requirements. So it was seen by a lot of Republicans as a way for him to double down on his plan, which has only attracted a few thousand people, but he says it needs more time to sort of take root. So right now, we still don't have a bill. We still don't even have a bill that would involve uh, deregulating hospitals, which was seen as sort of the big trade-off yeah. for this. So it's very, very long odds at this point. Okay. Bill, so the politics of Medicaid expansion, it's, mm. to me, to unpack it, we see a lot of red states around the country moving forward in some capacity on Medicaid expansion. And here in Georgia, um, what we're talking about are, are these hundreds of thousands of Georgians who are working. These are working Georgians. They have jobs typically. Uh, so they make too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to really be able to afford um, uh, insurance on the exchange, even with those subsidies. So we're talking about a lot of people. And and we're talking about them at a time when the COVID regulations established by the federal government to keep people on Medicaid past what would be the normal date for them to roll off are no longer in effect. And so the state of Georgia is one of the leaders in the country in taking uh, people off Medicaid at this point. I mean, several, I think we're talking about a couple hundred thousand people at this point. And, the, you know, the politics, I know we're running out of time, but um, as you well know, Republicans in power have always said, yes, the federal government picks up the tab at this point, but we're worried about down the line whether the state's going to have to absorb a big share of the cost of expanding uh, Medicaid uh, uh, fully. Um but you've also got to think about the partisan politics that play into this as well, I think. Yeah, and Greg, when we've had uh, Cody um, Cody Hall on, who was an advisor to Governor Kemp, and we've talked to him also um, behind the scenes, it, it just doesn't, this is not, Governor Kemp is not pushing this. This is not something that he said is something no. he wants to see done. And I mean, this is a very powerful, popular governor. Yeah, look, if, if it gets to Governor Kemp's desk with Republican majorities backing it, he's going to sign it. I'd be shocked to see anything, other, but he's not the force behind it, and nor is he um, an advocate for this at all. He 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 does want to see his plan take root, even though it's only attracted a few thousand followers so far. A few, followers. but there's no doubt. Also, this is a huge issue for Republicans who are seeking office. If you're Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones or Attorney General Chris Carr, who's looking at running for governor in 2026, you probably want to take this off the table for Democrats. Because Democrats have been pummeling Republicans for more than a decade, and poll after poll after poll shows a broad support for Medicaid expansion in Georgia. Okay, we'll cross over days later this month on the 29th. We'll keep you posted on those details. And if you have a question you'd like to ask us here on Politically Georgia, you can call the Politically Georgia call-in hotline anytime and leave a message. That's at 404-526-AJCP. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.